I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. Well, if I'm really honest, I can't say that I could easily roll off the names of female trombone players, and even less so, ones who are as diverse as my guest today. Carol Jarvis is an extraordinary lady who not only is one of our finest and most versatile instrumentalists, but she's collaborated with a whole raft of household names such as Seal, Taylor Swift, Bon Jovi, Amy Winehouse, Queen, Sting, Ellie Goulding and many, many more. Ah, but not only as a trombonist, but as a keyboardist, vocalist, arranger and much more. Well, Carol is indeed an incredible inspiration, and she's realised how important it is to cultivate the versatility often required in the rather fragile world of music. And indeed, this has been highlighted for many of us during the recent and ongoing global COVID pandemic. And she's certainly a great example of cultivating the art of creating your own opportunities, or perhaps the art of saying yes to whatever comes along and then worry about how you're going to do it. Well, under normal circumstances, Carol's career to date is utterly amazing. But to think that for nine years she had to navigate through life-changing medical challenges, including a bone marrow transplant, whilst in the thick of tours and projects, is testament to the strength of her character. Now, many of us would have stopped right in our tracks, but not Carol. She was determined to be right at the forefront of cutting-edge medical advancements and treatments. So I think you get an idea of the sheer feistiness of my guest today. Carol, you really are an inspiration. You know, I'm looking, I'm looking at you right now, you know, and, and looking at the, the kind of space that you're in. It looks like a, a recording studio. You've got your trombone on one side and all sorts of bits and pieces and you're looking the picture of health and all of that, thank goodness. And uh, so how has it been for you during this past year and recent recent months? Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, it, it's an absolute honour. Um, to be honest, I think the pandemic, um, it might be really strange to ask a freelance musician how it's been and expect them to say they've been busier than ever. But actually, I have been busier than ever. Um, I think I had this little recording studio built maybe three years ago, almost four years ago, um, at the back of my garden. It's sort of about five foot, uh, five metres by two metres long. So it's only a small little space, but I got it all soundproofed. And I'm so glad I did that since the pandemic hit. I've spent all of my time in here, not just online teaching. I teach at two conservatoires um, in the UK. Um, So all of that's been online. Um, But also I do a lot of voiceover work and recording trombone for sort of uh, media composers, library music, um, TV adverts, all sorts of things. It's just got extremely busy because obviously studios closed and uh, I've just been, yeah, just so, so busy. (laughs) And it's interesting that, and perhaps we could go back to uh, the early years and what your musical landscape was. So, I mean, was it county music or the family environment that ignited your interest in music? It was. It was uh, Milton Keynes Music Service to begin with, um, and then Buckinghamshire County uh, Orchestra and Brass Band. Um, so, and the music service when I was growing up was absolutely incredible. I remember um, I gained a, a Buckinghamshire County Music Scholarship. Um, I, I was probably about uh, ten years old, um, and I was learning trombone and then piano. Um, and uh, and the music service. We had the Saturday mornings, which started at about 8am with musicianship, composing classes um, and uh, and all the sort of technology side of things, right the way through to orchestras. Um, every rehearsal you can think of finished at about half past two, three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, that was my Saturdays. And then Monday nights were um, choir, Tuesday nights were brass band, Wednesday nights were one of the orchestras, Thursday nights was the other orchestra, Friday night was... Um, uh, brass, uh, brass quintet um, and then all the Saturday morning um, so Sunday was my day off and I, I 
actually, I don't know how I fit in my schoolwork at all, but <laughs> that was where my life was. It was it was always going to be there, music. Um, and I'm just so grateful for, well, not just my parents for being the taxi drivers and, and funding so much of it, um, but also to the music service that was around. Because I know since all the sort of art cuts and things, those kind of things, those opportunities aren't around for people these days, which is which is just so unfortunate. Absolutely. And it's interesting, the diversity of performing opportunities, you know, that you've listed there. But you, you said, well, you started with trombone and piano. But, you know, trombone for uh, a young girl perhaps was a little unusual or, or not? Yes, absolutely. I'm still um, very much in the minority. Um, but yeah, I managed started on recorder aged four and then had a go at clarinet, classical guitar. Um, but then aged uh, 11, I think it was, um, I passed a music test at school and they said that I, I could distinguish what was higher and lower. Um, and they said, right, we, you can choose any instrument, but we need an oboe player in the orchestra. So <laughs> I went home and asked my parents, what's an oboe? They played me some recordings and that, apparently I just said, no, that's 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 not for me. Um, for and apparently I just asked my dad, what's the what's the instrument with the slidey arm thing? Wow. And he said, oh, it's a trombone. Played me some recordings and that was it. I was hooked. So that was ah, it. That's interesting. So, I mean, what was it about those recordings? Was it the the actual sound, the musicality, the type of music? What inspired you about those recordings? I think it was absolutely all of that and the the versatility of the trombone um, and luckily throughout the Milton Keynes music service I was playing in orchestras, brass bands, big bands, improvisation classes, everything right from the very start so it was the, the, the wide uh, crossing all the genres of all the music, I, I think I heard George Chisholm playing some, uh, some very com- comedy pieces of music right the way through to um, really soft beautiful ballads by the likes of uh, sort of Glenn Miller, Dick Nash um, and then right the way through to the brass band sound that was really brilliant and then the big big symphonies with the brass section at the back so and the trombone is probably one of the most versatile instruments there is and I'm just so thankful that wherever I'd seen this slidey arm thing that I was hooked absolutely hooked from the start. And it's funny when you think about an instrument, because we, especially with something like a trombone, because you immediately think, oh, an orchestra, and you almost immediately pigeonhole it as being a classical type of instrument, possibly seen in a brass band and so on. But, But you're absolutely right. When you really, really think about all of the musical genres that it's so prominent in, you know, whether as part of a, an ensemble or indeed as a solo instrument. I mean, some of the great jazz players on trombone are, are, are absolutely amazing, you know. And then yeah. now with contemporary music, you know, we've had people like Christian Lindbergh, who has helped to elevate the, the whole trombone experience, you know, in, in just such magical ways. So it is very interesting what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many inspirational players out there that that I've uh, I've sort of learnt from, been inspired by. Christian Lindbergh absolutely being one of them. He was probably brought the trombone to the front of the stage um, properly for the first time and commissioned so many concertos for the trombone and then playing things like Vivaldi um, yeah. on the trombone and showing the versatility and the kind of technical... Um, expertise that you can actually get on the instrument um, mm. and really advanced um, the way all trombonists then had to step up um, to the mm. step up to the mark really because the, the kind of things you can play on the trombone even though with the slide it's much more technically difficult than having sort of uh, valves or uh, or fingerings and things like that um, so it, it's very very intricate the fact that yeah I mean it's you can play everything from glissandos to every note in between. So things like, I don't know, quarter tones or um, something like that is much, much easier on the trombone because we've got the slide. Um, but obviously the dexterity that's needed for the faster passages, um, yeah, is pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to explore a little bit of that maybe maybe later on. But, you know, from the county music landscape, which was so varied and, and stimulating for you, you then... Uh, went on to the uh, Royal Northern 
College of Music to become a full-time student there. And did you feel that that was a real extension to your experiences, um, you know, from the Milton Keynes uh, County Music uh, situation? You know, was that diversity explored even more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I got offered um, places at all of the conservatoires around the country um, and I just wanted to choose one that would carry on with all the avenues that I was already doing. Um, so I loved the big band playing. I loved orchestral things. I loved brass bands. I loved everything and I couldn't choose. So I just wanted to carry on doing all of it. Um, and I was split decision between the Guildhall and Royal Northern. Um, but I chose the Royal Northern. Um, I just really loved the atmosphere when I went there on an open day. Um, and now being a, a, um, a professor there as well uh, of trombone, then it's it's really lovely to be able to see the way the actual, the RNCM has grown as well in, in recent years. Um, and I think that the kind of courses they provide now are unbelievable. I, and I wish that I'd had even that much scope when I was there. But when I was there, I mean, I still got composition, um, piano, um, brass bands big bands orchestras I still carried on with everything so I was just so thankful for that um and then um as I graduated it was kind of wanting my career to decide which way I was going to go but uh Mm. um still sort of deciding (laughs) yeah I mean it is interesting because sometimes you can be in a in an establishment whereby everybody is studying the same subject i.e music um but it's a fairly high percentage of, of music students actually don't know what they want to do, you know, with, within the music umbrella. And I think with you, what I find so interesting is that you made that effort to be part of so many strands of music. And I think we've definitely seen during this past year that, you know, musicians have to cultivate a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, um, and perhaps not just be hostage to only playing their instrument. And the fact that you, obviously, none of us knew COVID was, was, you know, on the horizon, you know, when we were students. But nevertheless, the fact is that you know, you really embraced all of these things and and made those things a major part of your experience as a musician. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I've always had a very sort of creative imagination anyway um and always wanted to have lots of projects on the go i don't I don't really know why that's just that's just part of me. Um, so I think I've been very, very thankful and lucky. Um, when the pandemic came along, because I've always had loads and loads of things on the go. Um, I got into remote recording work um, probably about 15 years ago now. So and slowly, gradually built up a bit of a studio for myself um, and got a name for myself doing all those kind of things. And actually, since the pandemic, I've probably had 150, 200 people contact me asking what do I need to get? I need to get a microphone. What else do I need? <laughs> Help. Yeah. Um, I've even had um, Ian Bousfield contact me. Um, used to be Vienna Philharmonic. He is, and is just one of the most prominent trombone soloists in the world. He said, Carol, what microphone do we need to get? What do we need to get? Um, yeah. So I'm just really thankful that I, I've gotten known for that over the years. And then I was ready for a pandemic. Um, not yeah. that we knew that one was going to come along. But also... I think versatility is something that I'm always um, giving lectures about, um, presentations about at various um, conservatoires up and down the country. Um, And being versatile has enabled me to keep my living going um, through illness, through, um, through pandemics, through all sorts of things. And I mean, even you just have to look at West End shows and the Broadway pads of like a saxophone player saxophone players often double on flute clarinet all the saxophones um bass clarinet uh bass flute um but also they're having to double now on double reed instruments saxophone players are learning the bassoon and the oboe um which is completely different again and because because that's what's happening in broadway so learning the doubling instruments and as many instruments as you can um, to as high a standard as you can is obviously going to open avenues to you. I mean, I've had to, um, I've been asked to fix a few musicians for tours, recording sessions. Um, one time we had a had to find a saxophone player that played the violin. <laughs> oh, Completely goodness. different. 
Um, on tour with Seal, um, the four-piece horn section, um, one tr- lead trumpet, me on trombone, and then the two saxophone players, but one saxophone player had to also play the trumpet. So completely different um, uh, techniques and everything. And there was only one person in the whole UK that I knew. So obviously she, she got the gig. Um, so I'm, I'm always encouraging students, if you've always wanted to play another instrument, just find it, get one, get some lessons mm. on it and just just try and take it up, even if it's a hobby. Um, mm. I mean, just keeping up piano skills and keyboard skills has enabled me to, I stayed on tour with Seal longer than all the horn section did um, because they were cutting the band and changing the type of music. So I ended up being one of the major keyboard players on the tour and then singing backing vocals as well which uh, which is another story completely <laughs> it's a, it's really interesting and i suspect though that you know the courses that the music establishments offer moving forward you know as we navigate through this this pandemic i mean surely this is going to change yet again so that it's not only uh, down to the individual, you know, I mean, some people are maybe not going to be as motivated as you, um, or some people feel that it's it's just enough to try and navigate through their own instrument, one instrument, you know, and, and, and so maybe this, this kind of um, openness uh, is perhaps suitable for a particular type of personality. Yeah, I yes, I agree. Um, and, and I also think it just, it enables more avenues more doors to be open to you as well um i mean i i was offered a full-time orchestral job um back in 2009 um but i chose to turn it down which is um probably i i thought it was quite scary quite dangerous at the time but um but i'm thankful that i've continued to carry carry on all avenues of playing in every genre um and making a living from that and being my own boss. And uh, surely mm. there's nothing better than that. So mm. I feel very lucky. Absolutely. And it, it, it is, um, you know, that, that feeling in a fairly, uh, you know, fragile industry to be your own boss is, is you know, quite a step, really. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you don't quite know what's going to happen, you know, <laughs> from day to day. But but uh, nevertheless, I mean, one of the things, um, I mean, I've had the, the wonderful pleasure of, of working with Christian Lindbergh. And what, I mean, there are many things that amaze me with him um, and his playing. And, and what I found was this ability to create such a seamless line, you know, a, a, a melody that you think is being played by a, a musical saw or something, you know, it, it you can't quite detect where the breath is and the control of that breath and of course all musicians have to breathe and we sometimes forget to breathe you know when we're not actually for those of us who are not actually attached to an instrument such as percussion and sometimes you end up you know playing for ages and ages and you suddenly think oh I better breathe now you know but of course for a brass player it's 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 pretty essential to you know to have that under control Um, but have you found that the art of breathing for you as a trombonist, as a musician, has been important to tap into and control in other aspects of your life? Oh, very good question. Yes. Um, I mean, first of all, I go back to that sort of the, what you said about Christian Lindbergh and the music and the breathing. Um, this, when I'm teaching, there's, there's often times when, for instance, students are playing through a crescendo in a phrase to a big climax but it's such a long phrase that they've got to breathe in the middle and it's kind of a shame that we've got to breathe to be able to get that long phrase going and often I'm saying right you've got to keep the crescendo going through where you breathe Mm. and to try and describe that is is quite often that we finish notes nicely so that sort of the end of a phrase you've got to finish the finish each note nicely um, sort of a nice rounded ending um, but in the middle of that crescendo you've kind of got to the very last little split second of that note before the breath has really got to project so that your crescendo is carrying on in that gap um, and, and it's a real technique that when students get it it's just oh my god yeah yeah that absolute that phrase then works and it's just 
it's it's black or white it's it's either working or not um so i think someone like christian limberg uh, just absolutely mastered the musicality of uh, the trombone and making the breath just not just yeah like you say seamless just not even appear in the music um mm. but yeah moving on to um the breath um and breathing i think uh, well actually talking about my illness which you you mentioned earlier um some of the top uh, oncologists in europe have actually said that playing the trombone has probably contributed to saving my life and the breathing involved with it um so yeah i owe my life to the trombone <laughs> isn't Simple that interesting that. it's it's you know, we talk about and, and we'll, we'll talk about the journey that you've had, um, you know, which is extraordinary in itself. But isn't that interesting? You know, we talk about uh, keeping music in our schools and in our communities and so on and, and how it, it creates all manner of positive things. Of, and, and, and those are all important, important things. But for you to say what you've just said, you know, possibly it has saved your life is is quite profound I mean that is quite an amazing thing yeah yeah I'm I, I still like uh, thank my lucky stars every single day um, and uh, yeah my trombone is my best friend really um, if top specialists in Europe have told me that actually that's most probably contributed to saving a life then well I'm, I'm not gonna put it down anytime soon <laughs> Absolutely. And do you think, though, that your illness, which, you know, has lasted a long, long time, you know, nine years of navigating through, you know, lots of experiments, lots of new treatments and medicines, and many of them uh, did not work for you, but you just kept, kept pushing, pushing and persevering. Um, but do you think your illness has made you um, or changed your you're playing as a trombonist and indeed change your whole outlook as regards to how you deal with your your business moving forward and so on. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I don't think there's any sort of cancer fighter, cancer survivor who would reply no to that kind of question. Um, I think my, my whole perspectives of life are completely and utterly different. Um, I speak to my mum about it and she says my personality is completely and utterly different. She huh. said um, before I was so stubborn, I would be able to argue that black was white and I would win. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I I was very stubborn. And, and I think that's... I think being stubborn throughout the the fight was uh, very useful, but I didn't think I was going to be strong enough. I really didn't mm. at the start. Um, but I think that inner stubbornness came did come out um, and uh, determination. I think there was an awful lot of denial as well while I was going through it um, because every single treatment failed mm. um, up until the final clinical trial drug that got me to remission. Um, and for five years, constantly, every result, my specialists kept saying, you are not going to survive. Hmm. Um, they kept telling me, we've run out of options. Um, but then they found something else. And then that failed and said, Carol, we can't control this. Mm. And they sent me to psycho-oncologists to help me get around, get my head around the fact that I was dying. Um but I was still touring and I still felt okay. So it's like, well, I don't understand what's going on. And my specialist in one appointment said, Carol, there's a four centimetre tumour between your lungs. I said, four centimetres? And I sort of put my thumb and finger together to sort of mm. try and pretend sort of four centimetres in the air. Looked at him and said, that's pathetic. Four, four centimetres. And he just said, Carol, it's four centimetres that is slowly killing you and we can't stop it. And I think that was the first time it sort of hit home. And even so, I was sort of in denial, um, I think, just to be able to, I thought I went to hospital, let them do what they needed to, to me, like test on me, whatever they needed to do. And yeah. as soon as I closed the door in the hospital and I left, I was like, right, back to me again. Um, because I think if you if you let it just weigh down your shoulders, 
And it's yeah. so easy to do that. Um, there's just no escape from it. Um, and my music was always my escape. Um, when you go on stage, you get so caught up in what you're doing, fo- focused and just all in the moment of the music, that that was my escape. And yeah. I tell people now, I've had so many people ask for advice of how they can help their their mother, their friend who's going through a cancer battle. Um, and I just say, just find an escape. Even if it's like two hours watching a movie, um, you can escape the the worries just for two hours. And that mm. really, really will help you. Um, just mm. give yourself a break from it because it can be so all-encompassing. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, you know, as a musician... There's always this feeling of stress release, stress release, you know, when you perform or if you're on stage. And, you know, there's a certain amount of nerves there. There's the adrenaline going on. And as you say, you, you escape, you you um, you know, there are so many other things to consider. So even if you go on stage with um, severe toothache or something or a really bad cold, as soon as you start playing, it just seems to all have disappeared. And then it comes back again as soon as you leave the stage. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my tooth. But, but obviously your situation is much, much more serious. But were you able to talk to people, you know, your, your, your fellow colleagues, working colleagues about your, your, your situation? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think I, I really, really am so thankful that people kept employing me as well. Um, there were some people that didn't keep employing me. Um, it was quite crazy at the time when, because I, I was soon out of graduating, so I was still up in Manchester at the time, and uh, the local um, people there were not employing me, but people like the BBC National Orchestra of Wales down in Cardiff were employing me still and supporting me. Um, and so it was crazy that I had to get so tired traveling all that way um, just to be able to earn a living. But I was just so thankful to the people that did carry on supporting me. And um, most, I mean, trombone world is quite small and uh, we all know each other all across the world. And I think I had just so much support. Um, I mean, silly little things like um, I remember being doing the sort of what we call muddy field dates, the uh, the concerts, big firework display concerts. And uh, I remember you always have got clothes pegs keeping your music on the stand. And I remember a colleague of mine um, ended up grabbing lots of pegs and sticking them all on me <laughs> at one point. <laughs> Just silly little things. But then fast forward a few years and I was in having my first stem cell transplant. And uh, this, um, this clothes peg joke just carried on throughout the years they just turned up in places and uh, and then the BBC uh, last night of the proms um, the trombone section all had a clothes peg on their trombone and I was stuck in hospital watching it um, and I was just like oh that's just oh. incredible but it's just small little things like that that just mean the absolute world and you've got that support um all over the place so yeah welling up now <laughs> absolutely I am too it's an extraordinary <laughs> gesture and story and something as you say it starts with a little bit of fun but that means an incredible amount so thank you for sharing that for sure and I mean the trombone world seems to be really close-knit and obviously that was you know a key key factor to uh, you feeling supported uh, as a musician during your illness. And as you navigated through that, I mean, did you find that there there might have also been a sense of uh, almost fragility in that, you know, we know that there's always people lining up to take your place, as it were. Did you feel a slight responsibility that you had to work, you had to keep going, or was that just simply a necessary thing that you felt you wanted to do as opposed to needed to do? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one, that one, because um, I think I didn't really consider um, people taking my place. I didn't ever think about that. I mm. think what was going on in my mind was because my specialists, I think it was after my first initial chemotherapy, I'd lost my hair for the first time. It was six months long. And then I think I was, I was in my 20s and it's quite a, a common cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma in your 20s and 30s and 50s to 60s. Um, mm. And 
the prognosis is is really good for the primary treatment um and because that failed um I mean, the, the chances of it failing are really, really slim. But I was one of those people. And then my prognosis suddenly started taking sort of a skydiving route. And I remember having a, a, a really tight hug from my chemotherapy nurse. And she said, I'm just so sorry. I said, it's OK, it's fine. We've got more options. But I didn't realise that my prognosis was now starting to really get bad straight oh. after the first treatment. Um, and I went through so many other treatments after that. I exhausted all chemotherapy, all radiotherapy, stem cell transplants. I exhausted so many avenues. Um, but I think it was actually my specialists repeatedly telling me that I wasn't going to make it. Um, that kind of, that I, they kept telling me that I wasn't getting my head around that. But I think I was sort of subconsciously. And... I think I was just living my life as best I could um, in whatever time I had left. Um, and I was just trying to do as much as I could. I was traveling around the world, touring. I was doing all sorts of amazing tours, um, amazing recording sessions, and just loved every moment of it. And that's all I was focusing on and just enjoying myself. And I wasn't really thinking about the big picture of I don't know, someone might take my place if I'm mm, mm. not well enough for this bit. I, I didn't even have time to think that. I think I was just trying to live as much as I could. Yeah, and, and I mean, the whole process of being a musician, especially one like yourself who's touring and, and all of you know what that entails, it's quite physical. I mean, you're constantly packing things up and unpacking and moving around and queuing up and, you know, always on the go. And that's before even the playing starts. And and you do wonder whether this whole combination where the body is physically, you know, active and your mind is active. And as you say, you're totally focused on something else, you know, whether this was such a powerful scenario for your 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 well-being and ultimately the 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 goal in in getting over such a devastating situation, really. Yeah, I I think uh, the touring and and like you say, everything that comes with it just took my mind off it all. It mm. absolutely did. I mean, on tour with Seal. I toured with Seal for six years and um, initially I was allowed to, to book the horn section and luckily some of my very, very closest best friends um, came on tour with me. And so touring the world with your best friends, it doesn't get better than that. Um, okay. And uh, we had such amazing times and I think um, I also need to thank all of them for, for getting me through it. Um, and there were even times... Um, post bone marrow transplant right at the very end when I was trying to get back on my feet again and I was still still touring with Seal and he he kept employing me which was amazing um and we there was an American tour and I was like this is the first American tour the whole of America um from east coast right across on tour bus across the west coast on route 66 I've got to do this I've got to do this tour um, and I was only about eight or nine months uh, through my bone marrow transplant. And uh, normally you're not allowed to travel abroad um, for the first year at least. Um, and in my case, uh, past, uh, with a donor bone marrow transplant, um, your blood type has got to change over to your donor's type. Um, so initially I was O negative and uh, my, my bone marrow donor was A positive. Um, and normally it takes... A, a, just a few months for your blood type to, t to change over but mine for some reason didn't change over for two and a half years oh. um so in that time i couldn't produce my own uh, red blood cells i couldn't mm. produce any blood um so i had to keep going back to hospital every two weeks for two and a half years to have blood transfusions uh just topping me up and throughout all that time, they were really confused why it wasn't changing. They tried all sorts of things, including chemotherapy, of all things, um, just to try and get it to change over. And so we started this American tour and it's like, how am I going to do it? Yeah. There's, there's no way I can do this tour on just one topping up of blood. Um, 
And so Seal said, look, I'll just fly you home whenever you need. On a day off, I'll fly you home. We'll bring someone else out if need be to cover you for a couple of gigs and then you can fly back out again. So, oh, my God. And he did that. So I remember doing, we sort of started East Coast, all the way down the East Coast. We got as far as Chicago and that was it. My blood count went down to about six and I was struggling to walk upstairs and everything. The oxygen that's needed to go around your body to move, I just couldn't. I couldn't get my breath. I couldn't do anything. So flew back home again. They got someone else out for ten, two gigs, I think it was. I got topped up with blood. They topped me up as high as they could um, and flew me back out again. Um, and it was just amazing that I've had people support me like that throughout my illness when they could have easily just got someone else. Isn't that extraordinary? And all credit to Seal and his his team, you know, for for... Yeah, well, just being incredibly supportive. I mean, it's beyond supportive. It's just fantastic that 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 spirit exists, really. So so amazing. And do you think that you know this whole experience has changed you as a musician? Do you feel any difference in the sound that you create through your trombone, um, or how you're navigating through? the choices that you make professionally it's yeah very interesting you say that um i personally haven't really noticed um if it's changed me as a player but i think pretty much everyone that's heard me play say it has Mm. um and i find that really interesting they they people are saying that there's a lot more emotion coming out now um which kind of makes sense i guess um and something i've sort of put together probably it was all since I got through everything and I decided I wanted to sort of emulate the likes of Dick Nash, Irby Green, all these great trombonists with the sort of the really high register of the trombone playing these beautiful ballads and um, and I, I wanted to sort of emulate that kind of thing. I put together a load of music, arranged everything for string quartet and rhythm section um, and, uh, and started recording these these ballads and uh, and I think that kind of really shows a part of the trombone that's not heard very often um very very high register um slide vibrato and beautifully quiet and hearing that real pure tone that the trombone can produce and I think that's when people have said now this is this is different this is a this is a different carol coming out now this is different emotions this is deep deep feeling that's coming out that's coming straight from the heart and I think um even when I'm teaching now it is it's changed the way I teach um it's very often when you're studying and learning a piece of music you just concentrate on playing the right notes in the right order in the right time but that's not what music is music is to evoke emotions it's to paint a picture it's to make people move just you've got to move people with with what you're doing those notes are just a reference you've got to pull on something within you to actually make that piece of music say something and and I think that's something that I've subconsciously again um been able to do a lot more since what I've been through um and then in terms of decisions of my career and if it's changed that I think it's funny because when I got through the bone marrow transplant and then the really really long road to recovery um like I said it was like two and a half years before my blood type changed um my DNA changed as well to my donor donor's type um and uh, that sort of long road to recovery was just so slow um I mean the cancer was gone but I was like I'm just really struggling and I actually went into a really dark place mentally in that time. Um, probably about 18 months of uh, really, really dark times. And um, it, it was it was funny because my specialists then sent me to a psycho-oncologist again. Um, the same psycho-oncologist I saw to get my head around the fact that I was dying uh, a few years back. I was now seeing this psychologist to try and reverse that and try and not be afraid of the future and I was just so daunted by it. I think I was living with this sort of brick wall ahead of me, getting quite close, but not quite getting to it. And now suddenly that brick wall's gone. And I felt like I was just 
thrown out into outer space. And it was just, just so daunting to me that I suddenly had a life ahead of me. And it might sound so strange to, to someone who's not been through something like this, but I just I just couldn't see how to put one foot in, st- in front of the other. I really didn't know. I suddenly was questioning, who am I? Who Do I want to play the trombone? Um, where do I want to live? Should I live here? It's like, do I want to do music? What, what, who am I? I just had no idea because I think at one point cancer um, sort of dictated who I was for a third of my life um, at one point. So it was that safety net of hospital appointments was just gone and it was just so strange. Um, And it was, it was funny how um, I remember I had the decision whether to go for the bone marrow transplant or not. I got to remission through this um, experimental drug um, got me to remission and it shocked all the specialists and um, they gave me a month to decide whether to go for the bone marrow transplant or not and they said they found two matches out of 11 million people on the bone marrow register uh, one was pregnant so they couldn't ask her because in that month time frame she wasn't going to be able to do it but thankfully this German man said yes um, he went through all the tests and he was a perfect match um, and they said, so the remission from this drug, it might last for a long time. We don't know because it's so experimental. We just guess that you'll probably live for about three years if you leave it like that. Um, but a bone marrow transplant, um, replacing your immune system with a better immune system and start from scratch. If it works, you could live for a ripe old age. If it doesn't work, you could die within the first week, couple of weeks, month. Um, and they said the survival rate was about 30% for the bone marrow transplant. So this month to decide what to do was just, it was the toughest decision ever. Mm. And I remember asking my parents, my close friends, my brother, everyone, what would you do? And everyone, every single person said, I can't answer that. Mm. But we're behind you 100%, absolutely, whatever you choose. And I was just, oh my God, I... So often going through cancer, cancer um, fighters can feel very alone that this battle is theirs. It's just them. Um, But I didn't really feel that going through the fight um, because I had so many people around me and so much support. But actually at this moment, this decision, I felt so alone. Um, And I surprised myself. I almost chose just to leave it like that and live for maybe three years. Um, I went as far as almost choosing that. I went completely the whole spectrum um, in my decision making. And I I remember saying to myself, I don't ever want any regrets. I mustn't ever regret whatever I choose. If I choose to live for three years, I don't want to regret having not given the bone marrow transplant a go, even in the last few days of those three years. Um, if I go for the bone marrow transplant and they come in after a week or two and say, I'm so sorry, you've not got much time left. I don't want to regret having given it a go. Um, and what I didn't realise was actually there was a third regret. And that came once I'd gone for the bone marrow transplant. It worked. I came out of hospital. I had a future ahead of me. And there was a regret there that I actually, I regretted going for the bone marrow transplant. And that was so strange. But that I, I then speaking to the psycho-oncologist, they said that's survivor's guilt. And it's a real thing. And I had no idea what that was at all. But then I was regretting having a life. So strange. So strange. It is, it is strange. And it's so fascinating that you're able to talk so openly about this because it's 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 so incredible what you're saying. And I'm sure... This is helping so many people, um, you know, who might be going through a similar situation, not necessarily, uh, you, you know, musicians and touring the world and so on, but but many, many different people. Because you do imagine that, you know, once you've been given, let's say, the all clear and something, you think, oh, that's great. And your life will go back to normal again and, and get going. And, and that's all wonderful. But but actually, there's there's an awful lot still to navigate through. And it's very, very interesting what you're saying that that well, actually, you felt guilty by 
by having this opportunity to survive and to get going again and and really interesting yeah i'm it, it was just such a difficult time the bone marrow transplant because i knew one person just ahead of me in the process um and she didn't survive and also someone straight behind me in the process and she also didn't survive and she left behind a seven-year-old daughter um and that just added to my guilt i just i just felt so bad for surviving (laughs) really Mm. really strange Mm. and i mean you, you you talk about it really eloquently and is this something that you are putting in to a, a book form, making a, a, a publication out of this so that, you know, we can, you know, because a lot of what you're saying, I, I feel anyway right now, I just need time to digest this, you know, time to feel it, time to to just think, well, wow, what, what would you do, you know, in, in a situation like this? But And of course, you can never answer it until you're you're in that situation, um, but do you think it's, it might be helpful actually putting this into a publication? You know, you're one of thousands and thousands of people have said that to me now. Um, I, I did start a little uh, online sort of blog thing um, while I was going through the bone marrow transplant, just that my mum could update, I could update um, throughout the bone marrow transplant procedure. Um um, just all about blood counts and all sorts of things and, and all the medical procedures that were going on. And ultimately, I thought, well, my mum can announce my death on here and hopefully she won't have to just constantly tell so many people. Um, but it ended up being a, a bit of a, a place for me to write a few entries um, once I got through it all. And uh, um, I probably continued to update it a little bit uh, for a few years afterwards. And... The amount of comments on there, I've had 50,000 people tell me I need to write a book now. Um, And I have started, um, it's very difficult, very, very difficult. I started writing it and I just burst into tears. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a difficult process, but I I really, really do want to do it. Um, Even though um, medical advances have just uh, way beyond uh, where I was at now. Um, but for instance, the drug that got me to remission was the first drug in over 40 years to be FDA approved for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm. Um, so, and that was in, in, in production for about 15 years. So it's, it's crazy that the statistics that were around and I managed to land right in that little perfect little spot to, to have benefited from it. Um, and actually that drug was going to be removed from the Cancer Drugs Fund because it's so expensive. Um, but I went to the Houses of Parliament um, and campaigned to members of Parliament to keep that drug on the Cancer Drugs Fund. And luckily it stayed. And so uh, it's now positioned in the primary treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, which didn't work for me. But if I'd had that drug in the mix, I probably would have got to remission much, much quicker. Hmm, interesting. And now that you know the, the UK is making incredible strides with the COVID vaccination, um, I mean, this must be an incredibly important time, poignant time in your particular situation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've I've been shielding the whole time. Um, people like me have had to shield since last March, um, um, just because if if I were to catch it it'd be yeah probably not good ending um since all my all my treatments um and all the poisons i went through um because the chemotherapies are so poisonous to the body um i've been left not being able to produce my own antibodies in my mm. in my blood um so i have to infuse my own immunoglobulins uh, once a week um, a little bottle contains about 2000 people um from blood donations um, and so that tops up my um, antibody level. Um, so I have to do that every single week. But I've just been told just a couple of days ago from my immunologist that uh, the vaccine isn't going, to, I'm not going to have any antibody response from the vaccine. Um, and there'll be millions and millions of people in my position um, that won't respond very well to the vaccine. Um but I, I might be able to hope for some T-cell response. I'm not quite 
I don't quite understand the science behind that, but hopefully I might have a tiny bit of response. Um, but um, I've now had both vaccines um, and just actually put a post on social media the other day saying if people are out there thinking, no, I'm not going to have the vaccine. Um, I don't agree with um, having injections. I'm going to do, I don't know, I don't know, eat herbs instead or something like that. I don't know. Um, but if, if people are, uh, uh, believing the conspiracy theories of the fact that there's going to be tracing your DNA before this, all these crazy stories that are coming out there and people yeah. don't want to be a pin cushion or they're afraid of needles, you've just got to put that aside because the more people get vaccinated, I've been told I have to rely on the whole population getting their two jabs and herd immunity to keep me safe and there's going to be millions and millions of people out there that need everyone else to get vaccinated to keep them safe so yeah. it's not it's not a case of being selfish now it's a case of thinking of everyone else not just your your friends and family but yeah. people you walk past people you end up in an office with or people um yeah people you travel with on the train you're looking after yeah. everyone else Indeed, yes, it's such an important message for sure, and 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 really appreciate you mentioning that. And gosh, yes, it's a, it's the one probably situation that we'll all experience whereby we can all make a difference to each other. You know, it's as simple as that. And uh, and when you consider the journey that you've gone through, um, lasting many years, that a uh, uh, you know, five minutes getting a, a, a vaccine for COVID is absolutely, you know, a tiny, tiny drop in the in the whole scene, really, in as far as helping each other. So, and and I mean, because your story and and I I don't really like to use that word story, but the uniqueness of your journey and it's still continuing really because psychologically um, there must be an awful lot to to still uh, you know grapple with to to negotiate to chat with yourself about and so on um, but because you you do inspire a lot of other musicians what is the best piece of advice or the most important piece of advice you would give to a young player Oh, okay. I'll have to think about this one. Yeah, I think I think I'd probably say a combination of probably be creative, never stop being creative and be versatile. Because yeah. I think my versatility has enabled me to continue making a living um at times when I wouldn't have been able to. I think, uh, like, for instance, I got home from my bone marrow transplant, um, finally got out of my isolated room that I was in there for six weeks, and I got home. I could I could hardly walk. I, could, I couldn't even keep food down. Um, everything I was learning to do all over again, and a brand new immune system. And I, I mean, I caught pneumonia, the flu countless times over the next few years while I was getting all my childhood vaccine, vaccines all over again. Um, but I remember getting home and it was in the first few days I got home and a recording session came in um, to sing on a TV advert and I was like yeah I can probably do that mm. I was like I can't I, I can just sit there and do it I've got all the gear and I just had to pretend to be Doris Day for, <laughs> for a TV advert and I was like yeah I can do that and I wasn't anywhere near strong enough for picking up a trombone, let alone blowing a trombone. But I got a recording session in to, to sing. And I've I've never really been much of a singer, but when I've been asked to sing or being a backing vocalist or actually duetting with Seal at one point, I've just had to practice a bit um, <laughs> and, and really work at it. Um, I've never had a lesson, but I, I've, got, I've got a musician's ear. So um, I've just worked hard and practiced when I when I've had these things come in and I did this TV advert and honestly that was my first escape again from oh. all the burdens of what I'd just been through and and I was able to just do a few takes of pretending to be Doris Day for the flash 
TV advert for a <laughs> cleaning product. <laughs> well, I think you're probably extremely modest because um, you know backing singers singers are, are are amazing. You know, it's it's not a it's a it's an incredibly skillful thing to do. So I think you're probably being extremely modest <laughs> about all of that. But um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's it's saying yes to these things, you know, and and as you mentioned, well, then work at it, you know, it has to be practiced, it it has to it has to be nurtured and, and giving yourself that opportunity to, to try to do it as best as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I've always said yes to everything. Um I think I think now I'm getting a bit older and uh and wiser. <laughs> There are times where when I, when I can say no now, um, but I mean in the early days when you're starting to freelance, um, I remember um, a call at four. When was it? Four thirty p.m. one afternoon, and I was still in Manchester, and I got a call from the Halle Orchestra, and they said uh, we've got a concert in Lincoln Cathedral. Starts at seven o'clock. It's a three-hour drive. Can you get here? I was like, okay. That's not three hours. You've not given me three hours notice. So they just get, get here as soon as you can. And I thought, yeah, I'll say yes. Um, and uh, you kind of don't ask any questions at that age. You say, yes, I can do it. I'll be there. And before sat navs, and it was just trying to navigate with a map on the on the passenger seat, I was getting changed while I was driving. Um, and I had a little old mini at the time. And I remember managing to get all my clothes off I'm having my concert wear on the back seat and I was just getting the concert wear over to the passenger seat and I got to a, a, a toll booth and, and had to wind down my window and pay this toll booth and I was just in my underwear <laughs> crazy stories and I paid this guy and he was like what yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I try not to look and I know and then I just I was getting my clothes on and I was ringing the principal trombone player saying look it's going to be really really cutting it fine I've been breaking all the speed limits to get there if I get there on time I mean I, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it before the downbeat and he said don't worry we're ready to change the order of the program if you don't make it in time all right okay the whole Halle Orchestra waiting for me yes. to get there okay anyway I got to Lincolnshire um and the cathedral, I got to the outskirts, was like, how do I find the cathedral? Oh and it's, it was seven o'clock on the dot. The concert starts at seven o'clock and the bells started tolling from the cathedral. So I like, wind down my windows, like, okay, where's it coming from? Okay, follow the sound of the bells. And I was following the sound of the cathedral bells, thinking the concert's going to start as soon as these seven bells have finished. So I've got seven bells to get there. I, I pulled up behind the conductor's um, car Two people rushed me in. There was a round of applause, um, and I had no idea why, as I was getting my trombone out of the case and trying to get on the back of the stage quickly. And it was the conductor just taking his bow. Um, and I managed to sit down just as the conductor turned round to look at the orchestra. And it was literally that fine getting there, heart going like mad and oh. out of breath. And uh, um, the conductor just looked to check I was there and then said, right, downbeat was Scheherazade and oh. big second trombone solo. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Oh my goodness. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's um, an incredible story, actually. But yeah. I, I, and no warm-ups or anything. No, no, not at all. Um, but there's so many instances where I said yes, and then you just, you just work out how to do it afterwards. Some recording sessions have come in when I've just had this one trombone with me without the B-flat and F um, uh, trigger extension bit and mm. I've had recording sessions when I've been away from home saying uh, we've just got to record one note for this Sony TV advert okay no problem great send it through um, and I get to my hotel room and I've got my recording gear with me and the one note is a bottom D and the lowest <gasps> note on a bo on this trombone is a bottom E oh no <laughs> so it's like, gosh I've said yes to this now. How am I going to oh. do this? I can't just fake the note because that just sounds... Brrr. Yes. Um, so I just recorded a load of bottom E's and then just adjusted them all in logic and just... took them down and sent it off and no one had a clue. <laughs> so and it all that worked. Was, that was but, that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I yeah. suppose... It, it's, it's interesting because maybe the bit of advice um, that you can certainly give to young people 
is self-sufficiency. You know, you're very self-sufficient. You are able to just kind of navigate through the situations. Yeah, I think another bit of advice is probably try and find out a little bit more before you say yes as well. Um, Because I have almost come unstuck a few times, but there's always a way around it. Always a way around it. Yeah, yeah. And do you think, um, you know, just finishing off here, because I'm very conscious of um, how generous you've been with your your time, but, you know, I I know that there are, um, and you have been, uh, president of the British Trombone Society. You have been vice president elect of the International Trombone Association and president of the Trombone Festival. And I mean, all of these specialized organizations, and it's the same with percussion, of course, and indeed um, most, most instruments. But, um, you know, do you feel that the trombone is an instrument that will definitely be developed in the future, whether it's uh, the trombone itself, structurally, uh, whether it's the compositions written for it, and indeed the playing techniques. I mean, where do you see the trombone in the future? Oh, that's an amazing question. Um, I mean, it's developing all the time. There's new models, new um, new ideas coming out from all the manufacturers. Um, at the International Trombone Festival every summer, uh, we have every single manufacturer there. Um, and it's enormous, the amount of um, things that are available to try hands-on. Um, and we did some live streams last, uh, not last summer, because obviously there wasn't a festival, mm. but the one before. Um, and I walked around all the manufacturers and interviewed lots of them um, to see what kind of things they had available. And there's so much new tech coming out all the time. Um, unbelievable sort of ideas um, from trombonists to manufacturers. So they're always creating new models, new ways of playing the trombone. And then pieces are being written for those new um, new techniques and new, new bits of instrument. Um, and I, I think it's fascinating just attending one of those festivals to be able to just walk around just that hall. You don't need to go and see any concerts and recitals, but obviously they're available as well, of the, the top players in the world. Um, but yeah. just walking around and learning all about all of that and all the sheet music and everything's there. Um, and I think the trombone is just going to... There's going to be more and more better players out there and it's just going to get... It's, I think it's going to get more and more competitive. Um, but I think the more versatile um, the instrument becomes... Um, I mean, I'm recording a new album now, which is all pop and electronic. I just want to try and do something a little bit different again. Mm. Um, the kind of genres that we can we can play in, I think it's just going to be... Everyone's got to be so, so much more versatile to make a living. Um, and I think uh, it's going to be really interesting seeing... Um, the kind of top soloists that that turn up in the future, because there's lots of classical ones, there's lots of jazz ones, but I think there's there's going to be some people that really cross over as well. So yeah, it'd be and really interesting. That, absolutely, and I think that's definitely your uniqueness is is, is that you you're just all embracing, and you have this wonderful way of in a way, using technology as an extension of what the raw hand can do, of, of what the, 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 the human body can do through um, their actual instrument. And, and it, it's, it's such a wonderful thing because the creativity is then absolutely, you know, endless. It, it's yeah. just an open, an open field. Carol, I've just really enjoyed this time with you and, and appreciate so much of what you've said. It's, it's, inspiring on so many levels, you know, from one musician to another musician and, and just, uh, you know, seeing how you have created a, a really unique uh, musical journey. Um, and so whether you've been in the profession a long time, uh, like myself, or, you know, you're, you're a, a student there with wide eyes and so on, uh, it, it's equally inspiring, but also for sharing so candidly the, the extraordinary journey you have had um, with your illness and, you know, talking about how that's really affected so many aspects of your life and how helpful uh, 
you know, talking about it is, is to other people. So um, I really want to thank you for that as well. Um, but there's so many things I'd love to ask you, and maybe we can do that over a coffee at some point, you know, when I'd we're love more that. free love that. to move. <laughs> but in any case, I wish you all the very, very best with all the projects that you're coming up, especially with this new one with um, the trombone and, and electronics and, and all sorts of things. We'll keep a, a, a good eye on that. And uh, so all the best with that and everything else that you're doing. And maybe one day we can do something for trombone and percussion. I would, I, I was, you know, what? I was actually thinking that this morning. So <laughs> I oh, would absolutely, absolutely love that. Yep, indeed. Well, there is already a... a a double concerto for trombone and percussion that Christian Lindbergh has written called Liverpool Lullabies, can you believe? Oh. And a very, very lovely piece, actually, a really effective piece. Um, and of course, he's uh, an extraordinary composer like you. And uh, so certainly, you know, I'm sure there's lots of, of things that we can we can conjure up. But I think that's so a brilliant much. idea. All thank right, you Carol, so much. It's you. been an honour. Thank you. <laughs> I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.